attention this morning on verse 12 of the scripture reading where Paul says, seeing then we have such hope, we use great plainness, confidence, courage in our speech. We're continuing to look at the second epistle that Paul wrote to Corinthian church. Paul is defending his ministry. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we're using what's called a mirror reading of the Bible. That's where we make assumptions when we read based on uh, certain problems and difficulties that we're assuming are in a particular church. Now, we can't do this throughout the Bible. Every time we see a text, we can't assume that that's the problem at the church. But here, we have a couple of clues. One is an overemphasis on something usually indicates we can do a mirror reading of the text and we can understand what the problem is. Paul is overemphasizing his ministry. He doesn't like to do this. That tells us, as he points out later, that there are teachers at the church at Corinth that are influencing the church and they're criticizing Paul's ministry. Secondly, through verses 7 all the way to verse 11, Paul overemphasizes the word glory or some form of it. He will use the word 11 times in five verses. That's a clue that we can mirror read the text based on those two things and come away with what the problem is that he's addressing. The new teachers are trying to get the church to return to the glory days. The word glory is doxa, brightness, splendor. It's like the sports fan whose team is having multiple bad seasons, but they look back to a day when there was championships, there was glory, and they long for the glory days. Well, these Judaizers, which means they're mixing law and gospel, are trying to influence Corinth to go back to the glory days of Moses and the Mosaic age and the ceremonies. Now, why would the church be influenced by that? Well, in our day, novelty is in. Have you noticed that? Even in Christianity. If it's new, if it's original, if it's fresh, it's got to be good. If it's historical, well, it's to be put in question. But in this day, novelty was not good, and the gospel is new. It's fresh, so it's to be in suspicion. What's really old, historical, the establishment of their day, and I don't use that word as a negative word like we do today, the establishment was Moses. And for the Jews, that was a hard sell. They believed the gospel, but there's this historical, old establishment, Moses and the ceremonies. That was hard to give up. Well, these unbelieving Jews would come in and use that to say the real glory is the Mosaic Age. And yes, Jesus is good, but we've got to mix the two together and pull Jesus alongside of the glory of Moses, and they fit. And so Paul uses the word glory 11 times because he's going to contrast the Mosaic Age with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not going to speak disparagingly of Moses. There was a glory that attended that Old Testament, but it is gone. It is over. It is kaput. It is done away with. And there are implications for us if we look back over our shoulders to the Mosaic Age rather than having such hope and confidence in the future, 
what it does us, to us is that we have no boldness in our speech. Did you know your speech and your confidence is connected with your hope? And in our culture, people who have no hope are very confident in what they say. But the people who have real, genuine confidence of a guaranteed result because of the gospel, sometimes we don't have much confidence. So we have to ask ourselves, are we mixing law and gospel? Are we looking back over our shoulders? And do we have such a hope like Paul in this New Testament ministry, the new covenant of the Spirit, whereby it would give us a confidence, a boldness as we look forward? and not backwards. So we look at three things this morning where Paul is going to talk about the surpassing excellence. He will say, rather much more excelleth the New Testament covenant or the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. How does it excel that of the Old Testament? Not bad. Not saying we're moving from bad to good, but from lesser to greater glory. Moses is not bad. But he's lesser, infinitely lesser than the glory of the gospel and the church age that you live in today. So we look at surpassing purpose, permanence, and power. Verse 7. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, and it was, there was a doxa, there was a brightness about it, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now look at the contrast. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious, much more, greater? Now the backdrop of what Paul is saying is found in Exodus 34, where Moses goes back upon the mount a second time to get the second two tablets. The first have been broken. And Moses writes what God tells him. Again, the Ten Commandments. He's with God 40 days and 40 nights. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't had anything to drink. He comes down, and in his hands are the two tablets. I picture him as kind of holding like this. But his face is shining. His face is doxa. Doxa here means bright, luminous, shining. And as he comes down the mountain, the people are afraid to come near to Moses. He calls them near But then when he begins to speak, he puts a veil over his face. Paul is going to capture an event that happened, and he's going to show some symbolizing of that period through that one singular event, how that Moses' face was fading, it was vanishing, and the Old Testament period, which in Paul's day was actually fading, in our day, it's vanished. It's vanished. So that's the backdrop. So how is it superior in purpose? First, look at the purpose of the Mosaic age or the law itself. The letter that kills in verse 6 is the death in verse 7. Now, in other countries, when the government establishes official positions in a cabinet and give them a title, they typically use minister or ministry, not secretary like in our country. So a secretary of state is a minister of state, minister of trade, minister of health, minister of war. Now what if our president announced tomorrow he was going to put in place a new department? We call the secretary of death. And it would be headed by a minister of death. We'll say, what is the purpose of the minister of death? His purpose is to kill. Now would you be wanting to go visit such a minister whose sole purpose, whose sole existence 
is death. Well, that's what Paul is saying. The ministration of death, written engraved in stones, was glorious. It was from God. It was ordained of God. But its purpose was death. Now, why was it killing people? Because the letter was written outside of the people. It was written and carved in stone. The Old Testament period was a period of time where the Ten Commandments were outside of the people, not inside. That exposed their death. That was the design of the Mosaic Age, by and large. So when the letter meets a heart where the letter is only outside rather than New Testament ministry, inside, written in fleshly tables of the heart, it meets with two kinds of hearts, two kinds of people in general on a spectrum where it could be uh, different ways of responding, but generally two kinds of people. First, a self-exalting, self-satisfying person who meets the letter of the law and rebels and rejects it and says, I don't want to live that way. That's not my thing. That gives me no pleasure. That doesn't satisfy me. And they live a life on their own terms based on what pleases them. The second kind of heart that it meets is, again, a self-exalting, self-satisfying person who takes the law and lives a moral life trying to live according to what the law says. Now, the root of both kinds of people is that they're both self-exalting self and self-satisfying. In other words, they're rejecting the commandment keeper. So the law is given to expose the death of the heart, a proud heart whose sole purpose is either to rebel against the law because they don't have any pleasure in the law, or to try to live by the law because their pleasure is in self-satisfying righteousness. And so during this time period, this ministration of death and condemnation in verse 9 is designed to expose the death that exists. This is what Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 7, you remember, when he says, But... We have been delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, we should walk in newness of spirit, not oldness of the letter. Now, Paul uses almost the same language. Newness of the spirit is the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3 that we're looking at. Oldness of the letter is the letter that kills. So we've been delivered from the law. The Mosaic Age is over in one sense so that we may live unto Christ. Now, Paul uses a word that he knows will produce a certain response. The word delivered in the Greek means to terminate all discourse with, to separate. It's that word that if we were Greek-speaking people, as parents, we would tell our children, be delivered from bad influences, terminate communication, don't have those kind of friends. So Paul knows when he uses that word, someone's going to say, is the law bad? Why should we terminate all discourse with the law? So Paul anticipates the question and says, what should we say then? 
Is the law sin? God forbid. For I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, why did Paul focus in on that particular point of the law and nothing else? Because he did know sin, didn't he? He knew what the law said. He knew not to commit adultery. He knew not to steal. And he did everything in washing his hands to keep himself from those things externally. But what he didn't know was under the surface what gives rise to every broken law. And I'm not exaggerating. Every single law that has been broken is rooted in lust and covetousness. And Paul didn't know that in his experience. So what did the law do? The law exposed the death that was already in Paul. He was living in a house of cards and he thought everything was perfect. He had the law just right. He was a Pharisee. He was was of the tribe of Benjamin. And concerning the law and righteousness, he had it all worked out. Except for this one point underneath the surface. Paul was a self-exalting, self-satisfying Jew who coveted the glory of men. And so he says in Romans 7, But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me, worked in me all manner of concupiscence. That's just an old English word that means all manner of longing, desire, and covetousness. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, once upon a time. Now how is that true of Paul? How was he alive ever without the law? He was spoon-fed the law from an infant. He knew it from his youth. He was alive without the law concerning the true meaning of it. The heart-level understanding of the law. So he says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's how the ministration of death works. Its sole purpose is to kill you. In fact, the law is the greatest mass murderer around, isn't it? Its purpose is not to give you life. Its purpose is to slay you and slaughter you and open up and expose the death that's in your heart. Why would the church at Corinth go back to those glory days and live in death? And live in condemnation when the Spirit has come and given life and righteousness. Do you see Paul's point? Then he says in verse 9, If the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness excel in glory. Now remember, he's not saying that's bad. When he says it's death, he's not speaking irreverently of the law. He's speaking in terms of its purpose. The law was given to condemn you. So the whole Mosaic period was a time of death and condemnation. There was no provision for forgiveness in the Ten Commandments. It just kept exposing death, exposing death. Until Christ comes in the New Covenant, the Gospel. So listen to Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 19 when he unpacks the fact that Jew and Gentile are all under sin. He would say, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, It saith to them that are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. So the Jews were under the law, the Mosaic Age. And what was the law saying about that whole period? Death, condemnation. It wasn't saying, look at these people that can do what the law says and obtain life. It was a period of destruction from God, a period where the law was not being fulfilled. It was a period of exposing to our eyes as we read that period nothing but death, judgment, and condemnation because that's what his purpose was. Now, for your mouth to be stopped and your, you to become guilty before God, which means to be condemned, that's the ministry of condemnation, you have to fire your defense attorney, right? You are your own defense attorney. We defend ourselves. We tell ourselves we're not so bad. We tell ourselves we're not as bad as other people. But what the law's aim was, was to tell us just how bad we truly are. To make sin exceeding sinful. And to bring us under the guilt and judgment of God. It didn't produce it. The law doesn't produce your guilt. The law doesn't produce your death. The law exposes in your heart the death and the judgment and the condemnation you're already under. That's the period that they're being influenced to go back to a period of death and condemnation. So Paul then says in verse 20 of Romans 3, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. So this letter of the law that's written outside the people, it's not yet in the heart by and large in the whole Old Testament period. We just heard that in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive, Eyes to see, ears to hear. For the whole Old Testament period, by and large, the people had no heart for God. It was only a law outside of them that produced death and condemnation. We cannot be declared right before God by the law because the law is exposing our guilt. How can you be declared right by a law that's already exposing the fact that you're not right? Secondly, we cannot be justified by the law declared right because the law is the knowledge of sin. Its purpose is not to justify you. Its purpose is to let you know that you're a sinner. And so this entire Old Testament period where the letter was written outside the heart was leading up to the day when the Spirit would come by and large, in a much larger, greater way. There were people in the Old Testament that trusted in the Messiah to come, David, Abraham, Moses, but by and large, it was outside of the people producing death and condemnation until Christ came. And now we live under the new covenant ministry of the Spirit, which by contrast is what? Life and righteousness. Now, how much better is that than death and condemnation? We live in a time of life which the Spirit gives and righteousness which the Spirit brings. 
by faith to the people of God so that we may be able to behold the glory of Christ and see His image with an unveiled face, Paul would say. So they're going back to the time of a veiled face where Moses put a veil over his face so they could not steadfastly behold Moses' countenance. They were incapable because the law was outside of them. Now the Holy Spirit comes and implants the law inside of us. So what was once a self-exalting, self-satisfying heart is now pursuing what? A Christ-exalting and a Christ-satisfying heart. Because that's what the Spirit implants. And so we read again in Romans 3, the next verse in verse 21, after the condemnation, after the work of the law of revealing our sin, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, Without the law means apart from any idea, any confusion that this righteousness comes by your performance, what you do, or keeping a list of rules or a list of commands. It's apart from that. It's a righteousness that comes by faith of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit gives life and faith and then imputes righteousness so that we may trust not in law, not in ourselves, not be self-seeking. We trust in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is surpassing in its purpose. The law had its purpose, which was good. But now the purpose of Paul's ministry, the purpose of the Spirit in the new covenant age that we live in and the gospel church age we live in, the purpose is life, light, and righteousness, not death and condemnation. Now that should be good news for us. Good news. Now here's the second thing. It surpasses in permanence. Paul would say in verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, and it was, much more that which remaineth is glorious, seeing that we have such hope, we use such great plainness of speech. So Paul says, the law, the Mosaic age, is being done away. That's a present tense verb, which simply means it wasn't completely finished at the writing of this letter. When was it finished? When the last monuments to that age were completely destroyed. It was over for good. Hebrews 8.13 says, that which is old and decaying is vanishing. It's ready to vanish, which means it's very near, very close to vanishing. And when the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices ceased, that completed totally the end of the Old Testament age and ushered in the age of what Paul says, permanence. He uses the word remaineth. That which is fading like Moses' fading face, the glorious face, that which is now faded for us, it was fading for them, has been replaced with something permanent, something that remains, 
seeing then that we have this hope, we use great confidence in our speech. So Paul is basically convincing the church to stop looking back over their shoulder. The word plainness means evasive, not evasive, not vague, not with ambiguity. It's like today we hear some politicians, they, they, they can't speak with boldness and confidence. They must be evasive or vague. Why? Because of their hope. If you hope to be elected and you're not a person of integrity, you've got to say what needs to be said so that your hope will be fulfilled. And so sometimes they, they won't answer questions. They're very evasive. They can't just say, yes, that's right. This is my position. This is what I believe. This is what I think. Vote for me. Just like today, you, you can't get some of these people to define what uh, a woman is. You, you may have heard some of these people. They're very evasive. Why? Because of where their hope is. See, if your hope is living life as if you are God, where you decide what's right and you decide what's wrong, you decide what's good, you decide what's evil, you decide the way you want to live your life, then you've got to affirm people that have the same hope or you may lose your own hope to live that way. Therefore, they can't say what a woman is or a man is because that would be destroying the house of cards that they live in which would then be destroying their own hope of living like that person. Now maybe they, they firmly believe what their gender is, but to disaffirm that person means I lose my own hope of living exactly as I feel, as I desire, as I want to please. So Paul says, when we think about this hope, this hope of the New Testament, this hope that is permanent, And of course, he's talking about the future glory that awaits us. We have our sights on future glory and our confidence that Jesus Christ, what he's done, what he's purchased for us, he's going to deliver on our expectation of joy and happiness and being satisfied forever. It will produce confidence in your speech. See, our speech should not be like the world. They have a dying hope. The hope of the hypocrite will perish forever, the Proverbs say. But yet they're the most bold people. And here we are, we have a hope that remains as Paul gets our eyes toward the future, not the past. A hope that remains, a hope that is sure and steadfast, a hope that's like an anchor, a hope in life and righteousness. A hope to come produces a confidence a courage to speak. And don't we need that confidence today, beloved? We need such hope. Now you may be asking, but I don't get it. I'm not looking over my shoulder at Moses. I'm certainly not looking over my shoulder at the temple. Even if I were, there's no temple today. And I'm certainly not looking over my shoulder at animal sacrifices. After all, I am a Gentile. I'm not a Jew. That's not a struggle for me. But where is your hope? See, for the Jew, that was their hope. Jerusalem, the temple, that was their struggle, at least for the Christian Jew. I love Jesus, but all this establishment, it's from God. 
You and I need to remember Lot's wife in Luke 17. When Jesus speaks, he's talking about that coming destruction in 70 AD. He would tell them, remember Lot's wife. And why did Lot's wife look over her shoulder? Because of her hope. Her hope was still in the city. That's where her life was. That's where her hope was. And she turned and perished. Now Jesus is telling the Jews of that day, if your hope is still in Jerusalem and not in me, you're going to perish when Titus comes in and takes the city. One will be left in the bed, one will get away. One will be left grinding, one will get away. Who's going to be left to be destroyed? The one whose hope is in the Mosaic age. Is your hope in a, a, a thing that's vanishing, like the world is passing away? Is your hope in things that are decaying and waxing old? That's the spiritual principle Jesus is giving us in Luke 17. That was the problem with Lot's wife. So Jesus says, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, in that same context. Whosoever shall lose it shall preserve it. In other words, whosoever's hope is in me, who realizes this is the ministry that is permanent, it's lasting, it's sure, it's steadfast, it will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. But when we start looking back over our shoulders at fleeting things of the world, and we put our hope in those things and expect those things like a Jew, yes, did with Jerusalem, the glory, the brightness, the doxa, To be a Jew in Jerusalem, that's my expectation, that's my hope. For you, it may be the hope of a job or the hope of creation, where you and I turn to something that God says is vanishing, fleeting, and one day it'll be ripped out of your hands. And we find that thing, that created transitory thing to be the thing we expect to deliver like a delivery truck on our expectation for joy and peace and happiness. We won't be able to speak with confidence because our hope is tied to the very things we're supposed to be speaking about. And so Paul says to the church at Corinth, which had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and for the Gentile, they had never had the law, and they're, they're likely to say, well, These people are in the know. They've had this establishment for years. Who am I? And and I'll go with them. So it was a struggle for the Gentile Christian as well at Corinth. So Paul says, why would you go back to death? Why would you go back to condemnation? Why would you go back to something that doesn't exist for us now? It was fading for them. Turn to life. Righteousness, which is imputed. For he hath made him to be sin which knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that righteousness is permanent. It doesn't fluctuate. When you sin, it it doesn't get less. When you obey God, it doesn't get more. Because it's a positional righteousness that's been charged to your account freely by grace through faith because your sins have been charged to the account of the Savior. And he stood in your place condemned. He sealed your pardon with his blood. And that's why we sing hallelujah. What a Savior. So beloved, seeing we have this hope of life, of righteousness, 
freely by the Lord Jesus Christ and a permanence with this hope we can have confidence in our speech, confidence in tomorrow, confidence in the future because future glory awaits us and it will deliver on your expectations far more exceeding and abundantly than we could ever imagine. Our speech is connected with our hope. So let us not look back, but look forward to future glory. And then finally, Paul says, the new covenant ministry surpasses the old in power. He says this in verse 13, where he continues his hope and why he has plainness in his preaching, plainness in his speech. Verse 13, And not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, or being abolished. They couldn't see it because of death and condemnation. The law was written outside of them. And now Paul affirms that even more clearly in verse 14, but their minds were blinded. See, the problem was not with the law. The problem is the mind and the heart. So Paul again takes the backdrop of Exodus 34. Moses has a veil over his face. His glory, the shining, didn't last. It faded when he went back in to talk to God. He took the veil off. It shined again. He put the veil back on. Eventually it faded. The Mosaic age has faded. It's gone. So Paul takes that event to symbolize the truth of a veil, not on Moses' face. It's on their hearts and their minds. And what's the upshot? For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Verse 15, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon the heart. That's where the death and condemnation exist. And we could say even unto this day, when the Jews read Moses in the Old Testament, they can't see the end. They can't see it's done away. They can't see that Moses was speaking of Christ. They can't see that Moses is the friend of Christ. They can't see that Moses was handing off The baton, as it were, to the gospel. They can't see that the law is given to drive us to Christ by producing despair and death. They still can't see when they read the very words of Moses in the Old Testament, when they read the Old Testament in its entirety, they cannot see the end. They cannot see Christ because of their minds and their hearts, which are blinded. All right, here's the power. Here's the surpassing power. Of the new covenant. Nevertheless, verse 16, when it, now it could refer to two things. Regarding the Jews, eschatologically, it could refer to the future when Jewish people start turning to the Lord, according to Romans 11, before the Lord returns. Or it could be any individual whose mind is blinded, which means they can't see with their understanding. They can't see who Jesus is with the mind and the heart. 
You can refer to a Jew, individual, or a Gentile. Nevertheless, when it, the person with the veiled mind and heart, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now here's the question. How is it taken away? I think this is very, very crucial concerning our hope as it relates to a church. How is it taken away? The power that takes away is the Lord, who is the Spirit, and He removes the bondage, verse 17, and gives freedom. He gives freedom to see, freedom to know. That's the new covenant, isn't it? They shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. I will be their God and they shall be my people, not my person. Every time you think of new covenant, you should never think about yourself. It's part of the problem in Christianity today. You should think about the covenant community. It's not about you. It's about people. They should be my people, plural. Because God wants us in communities called churches. I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. I'll be merciful unto them. So the Holy Spirit unveils the heart and the mind, and with an open face we see the glory of the Lord. Now this is Paul's hope, because he says in verse 6, God has made him an able minister of the New Testament. In verse 12 he says, seeing we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. In chapter 4 verse 1 he says, seeing we have this ministry. Now here's what Paul does. He goes to the very Old Testament verses that they're reading and he preaches Christ. That's what he did in the book of Acts. Opening and alleging that the Christ that's there in the Old Testament you're reading with a veiled heart and a veiled mind is the Messiah and must needs have died and suffered and rise again from the dead. And then what happened? They believed it. Why? The Spirit gave life and righteousness by faith when Paul was preaching the gospel. Why should we expect anything different today? That's Paul's hope. Sometimes it'll be aroma of death to death, but sometimes it'll be an aroma, a savour of life. So Paul just goes in and preaches with this confidence. And so he just speaks truth. He doesn't need to be evasive. He doesn't need to speak with ambiguous words. He doesn't need to use figures and and, and, and all kinds of ways like the false teachers did. He just tells them about Christ because His hope is the Spirit is going to give life. Beloved, that's how people turn to the Lord. That's how you turn by the gospel. That's our hope. That's what gives us confidence to speak in a dark, desperate, hopeless, despairing world. Because we don't live in the age of death. That's pretty bleak, isn't it? We live in the age of life, light, and righteousness. When it shall turn to the Lord by the Spirit granting freedom, so that the heart and the mind sees the glory of the Lord, it will be done through ministry. That's how the Spirit does it. And so that should encourage us in the dark day we're living in. But secondly... This power is the power not just of initial conversion, but ongoing transformation. Verse 18, but we all with open face, we are looking, we are beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. God's face has been unveiled in Christ. Now we can look upon Him. 
we live in this age. And what's the, the result of seeing the glory of the Lord? We are transformed or changed into the same image that we're looking at from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, here, here's, here's the connection with the Mosaic Age, the law, and the New Covenant. The law is powerless to convert anybody, and it's powerless to change people. The problem is you and I keep using the law to try to get people to change. That's how you try to fix your marriage, isn't it? You bring in law. It won't work. When you bring in law, what are you going to bring in? Killing, death, condemnation. You're going to condemn people because that's what the law does. When this was happening at the churches of Galatia, Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. Why? Because they were doing just that. Killing, death, condemnation in their relationships. Why? They had been infected by the same Judaizers mixing law and gospel. And when you try to bring gospel into your relationships, it's going to kill. Now, what would you bring? You bring Jesus into your marriage and your relationship. What would that look like? Well, in chapter 5 of Galatians, where he says, don't bite and devour, he says, bear the fruit of the Spirit. What you bring is your own transformation. As you're looking at Jesus, you are starting to put on Christ with love, joy, peace, long-suffering in your relationships. You're so tolerant. You're the most tolerant husband and wife. Why? Because you've seen Christ and you're being transformed. And you're bringing gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance, self-control, and meekness. Against such, there is no what? Law. And they that are Christ have crucified the affections with the lust. See, if we belong to Christ, then we're, we're crucifying the affections and the lust. So the, the power, the surpassing power of the new covenant age is seeing the Lord in such a way that He transforms us more and more into His likeness, bearing fruit, and that fruit moves out into relationships in the form of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith, temperance, meekness, the nine pieces of fruit. The law cannot produce that. And when we bring law into it, we are trying to change people with condemnation. We guilt them. We accuse them. We blame them. And we say, stop doing that. Start doing this. You've got to stop doing that. You've got to start doing this. That's just moralism. I mean, you could tell the unbeliever that. Stop talking like that. Start talking like this. Stop saying that and stop doing that. It'll fix nothing. It's your transformation by looking at Christ, that starts to produce the fruit that brings Jesus to your wife and to your husband and to your children. The law is not made for the righteous. What that means is, it's not made for righteous people. Stop using it. It's made for the lawless. 
So if there's a person in your relationship that's lawless, bring them the law. And show them their despair and their guilt and their condemnation. So drive them to Christ. But for the Christian church, we don't fix the church with law. It's gospel. It's Jesus. And so if we're not taking aim at Jesus, we're missing the mark. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to fix all our problems with law. Law. And law produces darkness death and condemnation. So beloved, seeing we have such hope, hope in life, hope in righteousness, hope in the permanence of the gospel and future glory, and hope in the power of the gospel to transform us into people who love and have joy and peace little by little, from glory to glory, from one degree to another. And how does this happen? Even by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, that ministry is what the church has. May we see the surpassing value of the age we live in. And may we have such a hope that we use great plainness of speech. And I'll close with this song. I'll read it about this reality of hope. It says, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ, unto the grave? What shall we sing? Christ He lives. Christ He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You're so good. You are glorious. We thank you, Lord, that we even have the privilege to live in such a day where we can see your smiling face in Christ and not have to look through the types and the shadows and live in the time period of death and condemnation, a time period where, by and large, you had not given hearts to perceive, eyes to see, and ears to hear. But now, Lord, throughout the nations, you are giving such hearts, writing the law inwardly in our hearts and minds, and bringing people to faith in Christ by life and righteousness and the permanent hope we have in Jesus Christ. May we understand that this is our ministry to the world. This is our ministry to one another. As we behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel, may we bring the good news to one another. May we be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and bear the fruit of the Spirit. May we change and help others change through the ministry of the Spirit, through the Word of God alone, through the preaching of the gospel and through seeing Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Savior, in Christ alone, in Christ alone, we do pray. Amen.